The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, Money Matters. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. This week I had lunch with a buddy from a gym. Uh, As a pastor, I don't get a lot of opportunities to interact with uh, people who aren't believers. So the gym is one of the places where I go and I realize that God's put me there as a missionary and I've been building this relationship with this guy. Uh, and we happened to grab lunch this week and, and in sitting down and talking, I started hearing his story and, and he started sharing why he wasn't interested in church. Now as a pastor, that's, that's probably a hard conversation to be you know, telling a pastor, you know, I don't really want, you know, I don't want anything to do with what you're selling. But he was gracious enough to let me in on that and, and tell me why he's not interested in church. And, and it sounds pretty typical for a lot of people that we meet in our city where he said, you know, this church thing feels like it's all about the rules. And in fact, as I got to hear a story, that's a lot of what it was like. It was do this, don't do that, right? Fall in line, don't be too crazy, just follow these rules. And so for him, this idea of church life, being part of a church seems transactional and obligatory. And, and, and he realized, he's like, it's just hard for me to be excited about it. It's hard to be uh, ha- to think of that and be really joyful and be happy about giving my life to something like that. In fact, as he was talking about that, I agreed with him, right? If, if that's what church life is, if it's transactional and obligatory, like I don't blame him for being disinterested in church. And if that's the case, I'm also disinterested in what church life is like. But when you believe the gospel, when you believe the gospel and you become a Christian, Your new way of living and your involvement in the church isn't about following rules. It's about following a person. Because here as a Christian, you've entered into a new relationship with Jesus. And that's what we need to see, that the Christian life is primarily relational. You can see that in the way that we're taught to pray. We don't say, Jesus didn't teach us to pray, dear God. He said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. 
So there's this sense where we enter a relationship with Jesus. It's a a life-giving relationship. Jesus gave his life for yours that you might become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, right? Here we are, we're a new creation in Christ. But this relationship with Jesus is also life-shaping. It reorients our life so that we would become more and more like Jesus. You see, this new relationship that we have with Jesus is so profound that it shapes our entire life, not just our Sundays, which when you talk to people, non-believers in, in our city, that's a lot of the times what they think church is about, just about the Sunday mornings. But Jesus actually says it's more than that. It goes to your whole life. It reforms the existing relationships that you have. If you follow Jesus with your heart, with your life, you will become a better spouse, a better parent, a better friend, a better neighbor, right? It it transforms those current existing relationships, but it also creates new relationships that when you are born into God's family, now you have brothers and sisters in Christ. And with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you now live all of life to the glory of Jesus as missionaries and servants, bringing others into relationship with Jesus. But not only does Jesus shape the relationships that we have with people, Jesus reorients and changes the relationships that we have with our possessions and our money. It's that profound. And we've been talking about this the last few weeks in our series, Money Matters. And the reason that we're talking about this, why why money is so important for us to wrestle with and process as Christians is that Christians now being brought into the kingdom of God, Christians now live in a new economy. Christians live in the economy of God's grace. Now, I'm not an economist, I actually know very little about the economy. In fact, most of what I know about the economy I found in Google searches this week. When I was in college, I was not required to take any economics courses, and I think that's because they didn't want you to realize how poor of an economic decision it is to major in music, right? Um, And so with that said, my, my knowledge of economics is pretty limited, but I know enough to say this that God's economy operates on radically different principles than the economy of this world. So much so that it's not uncommon for non-Christians to look in at Christians and think that they're living fiscally irresponsible, not because they're spending money on extravagance, but because they're cheerfully giving away large sums of money, right? It's kind of shocking. You sit down with a non-believer and you talk about your generosity and they look like, what? You give, you give 10% of your income to the church and then some, right? That, that's countercultural. That's something that, that just blows their minds. And this is because As Christians, we are going against the economy of the world, which says that you are most happy when you spend or save your money thinking of yourself. Now, we all know how to spend money cheerfully, right? Like, you spend money with a new house, new car. You come home, and you see that box on Amazon, and you get this 
you know, the giggles, you get the, the willies because you're so excited what's coming. As a musician, my, my favorite days, I call them uh, NGD's New Gear Day. You buy a new mouthpiece or you buy a new instrument and it's just, you're so excited for that to finally come, right? We all know how to spend our money cheerfully, but giving cheerfully, what, what is that, right? Because that's what, what our passage tells us, that God loves a, a cheerful giver, now, it's exciting to, to get new things. But in comparison, giving away money seems less fun, right? It seems like a less cheerful or joy-provoking action. But here's the thing. In God's economy, there's more joy found in generosity than there is in keeping what you have. In fact, that's what this passage that we're looking at today is saying. That if you're stingy, if you lack generosity in your life, you're missing out. Because your greatest joy is found in generosity. In God's generosity toward you, but also your response in God's generosity to be generous to others. And I know this is a difficult concept, and some of you probably don't feel that way. Maybe you don't believe me. And so that's why we are going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Now, if you want to open up your Bibles, you can. There's a few Bibles in front of you. I don't know what page number it is. I forgot to look. Uh, otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. And we'll take a look here. Um, and as you're getting there, I, I just want you to know, when, when Scripture was written, it wasn't written in a vacuum, okay? Every piece of Scripture is written in a specific moment of time to a specific people for a specific reason. There's always an immediate context. This passage here has happened in a specific context where the, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. Now, the Corinthian church um, is the church that the Apostle Paul actually planted himself. He came to Corinth. He preached the gospel. People were saved. They started living their lives in submission and in honor of Jesus and worship of Jesus. And in fact, the Corinthian church is a lot like us. They're a young, growing church, and they're financially well off. Now, that might seem a little presumptuous for me to say that about us as a church, but, but you need to know this. If you have access to clean drinking water, you are rich by global standards. If you make minimum wage, that puts you in the top 5% of the world. So if you're making minimum wage, now as Americans, that doesn't, that doesn't sound um, like we're wealthy, right? We, we have a pretty high standard of living as Americans, but this is the reality. When you put ourselves, when we're put in the context of the global economy, we are a very wealthy people. But as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church, there's a church in Jerusalem that is in a financial rough patch. They're in a, a huge famine where resources and money and food is very limited, that they are experiencing extreme poverty. Now, Paul, when he sees the need in Jerusalem, he doesn't write to the Corinthians and say, hey, you guys, you just keep them in your prayers, would you? Just throw up a prayer when you think of it. And Paul says, hey, let's pray for them, 
But let's step into those prayers. Let's, let's put our heart and our efforts towards those prayers as well and be generous towards this church. He sees a real need and he, he doesn't say, I'll just pray for you. He plans an offering. And so he calls the Christians in Corinth to give above and beyond what they would normally give to the church to help their brothers and sisters. Now the church is at her best in these moments of distress. When, when the people of God unify for the common good, we had a great, well, it's not, it's not I shouldn't say great, but you, you saw that during Hurricane Harvey, right? When, when Houston got hit by that uh, hurricane, it was devastating to the city. And uh, being part of the Acts 29 church planting network, we have churches throughout the country, actually throughout the world. And one of the churches that is part of the network uh, down in uh, Houston said, hey, we have needs among our church. Like we could really use help from our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us meet some of these physical needs. And, and so this church sort of became the point people here. Um, as we saw hundreds of churches in the Acts 29 network come together and partner where pastors were coming up behind the pulpit and saying, hey, guys, our brothers and sisters in Houston are hurting. Let's, let's help them out. Let's not just pray for them, but let's contribute to their needs. Now, every time a pastor gets up and talks about money, they're, they're taking a risk here because there's a cultural distaste when the church talks about money. I feel it, especially when we, we come into this, this uh, sermon series, people are probably looking at, like, how many weeks are we doing this, right? We, we just don't necessarily like it. You hear the church talk about money and you start to get skeptical about what that money is going to be used for. Your wallet goes on lockdown. But it's so ironic that you watch a, a commercial with these scrawny looking dogs and Sarah McLaughlin voiceover and all of a sudden that wallet comes up and it's like, take my money, Right? Like, we, we can get suckered into some of those things. It's like, shut down with the church, but whatever else, you know, I'm happy to contribute to. Now, when you see this sort of trend with, with these, specifically these advertisements where they're trying to raise money for something, and it might be a good cause. I'm not knocking the dogs. If you got money, you throw a dog, throw it at a dog. But when these people are raising money, what typically happens, the method that they use is usually to play on guilt or emotional manipulation in order to get you to give. Right, you hear the sappy song, you hear the sob story. It's like you feel this. If you're if you're a feeler, at least, uh, you feel this sense of like I should really contribute to that to help them out. Now, so there, but there's another way that they can do this to get you to give. Uh, another method that they might use is to play on the strings of your pride. Right? Hey, if you help out, man, you'll be a hero. People will be so thankful for you. Or there's the other way that the government typically uses. They use a strong arm, right? You, you either give your money or you will be punished. Now, when we're looking at the way that Paul raises money here for the Corinthian church, he's not doing any of that. There's no guilt. There's no sob story. He's not playing on the pride of the Christians in Corinth. He doesn't even use his power as an apostle to demand that they give, right? Back in chapter 8, we didn't read this, but in chapter 8, he says, this is not a command, If those are your motivations for giving, no wonder why giving isn't a cheerful experience, right? Nobody gets pumped up to pay taxes, 
because you have to. Right, once the emotion of guilt wears off, you're, you're left wanting, man, well, maybe I want my money back? I don't know. It, it sort of wears off. You don't really feel that cheerful giving right away or, or continuing. But Paul uses a different motivation, and his motivation for giving lies in the kingdom of God and God's economy of grace. And in verses 6 through 15, Paul lays out four principles that makes God's economy different from the world economy. And to help us understand, Paul is going to use an agricultural illustration of sowing seed. So here's the first principle. Everything is given. Everything is given. We talked about this a lot in the first week of this sermon series, but this is, has to be, for Christians, the starting point when we're talking about money. That everything you have has been given to you by God. Now, this is fundamentally different from what the world economy, the, the world economy says you earned it, you, you worked for it, you produced this. And that is a very nearsighted way to look at our money to look at life. But this illustration doesn't allow it. Because here in, in where is it? Let me see. He, he, in verse 10, says, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. See, this passage is saying before you can sow, before you can use seed, it comes from somewhere. There is a source. There's somebody or something distributing what you need to plant the seed. And that's the same that is true about your money and the means to get your money. Wherever your money, whatever you have for your money, whatever skills and abilities and opportunities that you have, whatever brain power and IQ, it came from God. You might work for it. You might partner with God and working, using those giftings to get it, but it came from God. And so you have to see that everything you have is ultimately given, not earned. You see, that is the definition of grace. It's a gift. Now, here's the second principle. And the second principle of God's economy deals with how you use that grace, how you use your money. Second principle is this. Your money is meant for others. Now, that, again, this is countercultural because the world economy says, hey, no, 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 you earn that money, use it for you. Use it the way that you see fit. But, but in God's economy, when we see that it's God's money that's been entrusted to us, we know it's God's money, and so God gets to determine how we use that money. And part of that's going to be providing for our own needs, right, paying your own rent, buying groceries. But it's also used for other people. You know, you see this in verse 6. Where he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly. Now, when, he, when he's talking about sowing, he's talking about distributing. He's giving. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Now, in doing so, this is, this is the crazy thing. And verse 11 says, in doing so, you will be enriched in every way, that, that God has enriched you, that he's blessed you, he's given you grace in every way to be generous in every way. That God gives you money to be a conduit for other people in supplying their needs. It's not just meant to be splurged on you, but to help other people. The, the, if you were to just take what God gives you and use it for yourself, that'd be like taking seed and smashing it in your face, right? You, you eat, if you're eating kernels of corn, it's not going to be very enjoyable. But when you take that seed, you distribute it, you plant it, you give it away, it produces a harvest. And in that harvest, God plans to bless other people through us. Now, this is one of the, the defining things about Christians and what our worldview is like. That from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end, Christians are blessed to be a blessing, right? In our culture, there's this hashtag blessed, right? You see it on social media. It's like kind of showcasing a humble brag of how good my life is. And I think in some ways that's, that's the way the world economy works, that, that we, we're trying to generate good social media content so we can put hashtag blessed on it. Look at what I have. But in a Christian worldview, in God's economy, we are blessed to be a blessing, blessed by God to use our money to help other people. Now what this means is that no one is too poor to exercise generosity. Generosity isn't just for those who are well off financially. Now we haven't necessarily talked about it too much because this is a series about money, but there are other ways to be generous. But even in our poverty, even when we feel like we have limited resources, God intends to use those to give to other people. But so often we say things like, well, when I know I'm not very generous, but when I get a bump in my pay, when I, when I hit this number, then, you know, then, then that'll give me the margin to be a generous person. But here's the reality, that if you lack generosity now, when you lack abundance, you won't be generous when you have an abundance. See, generosity is a condition of the heart, not a, a, a moment in time. It's not based upon circumstances. Now, the best examples of generosity actually come from those who aren't wealthy. Jesus, in Luke 21, Jesus is standing in the temple, and he watch all, watches all these rich people come up, and they, they put their tithes and offerings into the temple collection basket. But what grabs his eye isn't these large sums of money that are being put in. What, he, what grabs his eye is this old widow who comes up and drops in two coins. And he says, this woman, I tell you, has given more than anyone else because she did not give in her abundance. She gave out of her poverty. She gave when it hurt. Now listen, I, I'm at the point in my life where I'm kind of unimpressed by billionaires giving $1 million, $2 million donations. Like, it, that's a big number for most people, right? But a million dollars to Warren Buffett is a drop in the bucket, right? That, when you look at his life, a million-dollar donation doesn't cut into his lifestyle. True generosity is sacrificial. It's gonna cost us something. Now, a perfect example of that is the Macedonian church because Paul not only was talking to Corinth about raising money for the church in Jerusalem, he's already talked to the Macedonian church. 
And, and he boasts about the Macedonian church and their example of generosity back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I think we got it up on the screen here. You can follow with me here. Um, let's see, where am I at? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Do you see what happens here in the Macedonian church? They're giving, they're a poor church, extreme poverty, who is giving to another poor church. That's generosity. Now the question is, how could they do that? How could they give, if they're poor, if they're in extreme poverty themselves, how can they turn around and, and give what they have away to another church like that? The answer to that is that they trusted in God's provision. We see this in verse eight. Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you what he's saying is that whatever your need is, God can provide it. And knowing that God can provide their needs developed a sense of contentment in what they had and actually freed them up to be generous. Verse 8 goes on. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency. If you're looking in the ESV, there's a little asterisk by this. It says, all contentment in all times that you may abound in every good work. That every good work he's specifically talking about is the work of generosity. So that's the second principle. Your money is meant for others. You're a conduit that God intends to bless others through you. Now here's the third principle of God's economy. Those who give more will receive more. This is right in verse six. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now in the world economy, a dollar given is a dollar lost, right? You give a dollar away, that's a dollar you don't have anymore. Now that dollar is somebody else's. But in God's economy, a dollar given is net gain. It, it comes back with returns. Here's the deal, that if you have a tightly closed fist around your money, if you're, if you're restricted, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. A tightly closed fist is unable to receive more of God's blessings. Now, I realize that some of you might cringe at this, and I don't blame you. Right? You have what I call PGPTSD. You know what I'm talking about? Prosperity gospel post-traumatic stress disorder. Right? You, you've heard the preachers up on the TV. You've read the best-selling books that say, hey, if you take $5 and you invest it, you, you, you sow your seed, it's going to come back. You're going to get $500. God's going to open up the treasury of heaven and just pour it out on you. 
Right? That, that's a prosperity gospel. That's a false gospel. That's not what the Bible necessarily teaches, though you can twist it. Because if you're giving to God to get ahead in the world economy, you completely miss the point of God's economy of grace. If you're using the church as an investment strategy to get rich in the world's economy, then you missed it. You're blind, whether it be for tax breaks or kickbacks or whatever the case may be. That's not generosity at all. At the core of that is selfishness. Because you're giving money in order to get back for you. See, that's the gospel of greed. But just because this verse has been used by prosperity gospel kooks, this doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is a precious promise to us. It's actually one of the major keys to understanding God's economy of grace, that if you sow big, you reap big. The more generous you are, the more you receive in church in return. But this does not necessarily mean you're going to receive money in return. It doesn't. If you give to the church, you might, for the rest of your life, be at the same revenue point where you are today. There's no guarantee that you're automatically going to get money back. But you might. God might choose to bless you in that way. Because we're told uh, in previous weeks, we saw that, that um, those who are faithful with little will be entrusted with more. But the deal with this and God blessing us and adding financially to us is not for us. It's not to line your own pockets. What we see is the return that we see on on giving and sowing generously is the return comes so you can sow more seed. As you live generously, that comes back, which allows you to live even more generously. That's in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for what? For sowing and increase the harvest of righteousness. Wherever money is given, wherever seed is sown in the name of Jesus, there is an increasing harvest of righteousness. Now, you can't say that about the world economy. In the world economy, the more you spend, what's probably happening is an increasing harvest of greed, of anxiety, of fear, of worry. But God flips this. There is an increasing harvest of righteousness, and this happens on two accounts. It happens on the giver Those who give increase in righteousness through generosity. In fact, that's what that quote is where he says, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's a quote from Psalm 112 where it's talking about how a righteous man, somebody who, or a woman, how a righteous person lives is marked by their generosity. Now, we gotta be careful here because because giving isn't a means to become completely right before God. It's a response to God. There, there's a difference here. We, we distinguish it in two ways. There's active righteousness, which is our participation in the way that we live godly lives is active righteousness. But then there's passive righteousness. The righteousness that we receive through Christ on our behalf. And that's the only way to 
receive true righteousness is through Christ, but we respond to Christ's righteousness and giving us his righteousness by participating in active generosity. And so the, the giver increases in righteousness, but also those who receive increase in righteousness. We see this because they increase by righteousness in worship and in mission. This brings us to our fourth principle of God's economy of grace. Money is not just a physical item. Right? We, we think of money in terms of something you hold in your hands, it's a physical dollar bill. We can use it to buy physical things. But in the economy of God's grace, money crosses the physical threshold into the realm to make a spiritual impact. See, in your hands, money is just money. It's physical, it's finite, you can use it to buy physical things, but in God's hands, money is so much more. It's eternal, not temporal. It's physical, but also spiritual. It becomes fuel for mission and worship. See, that's the exchange rate in God's economy. That's the power of putting money into God's hands. Now we see this in verse 12. It says, the ministry of this service, he's talking about the generosity, is not only supplying the needs of the saints. Okay, so he's, he's saying, okay, when you give, you're meeting some physical needs, right? You're, you're providing food, you're giving shelter, you're giving clothes and water and whatever resources they need to live. And there are a lot of great nonprofits that are secular that do this in our country, in our world, right? And we need organizations like that that are, that are meeting the practical need of food and water and shelter and clothes. It's all great. But that doesn't accomplish what Christian generosity accomplishes. Because he goes on in verse 12, the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. What he's saying here. So when you give money, when you live generously, you are stoking worship in the lives of other people. You think about this. The, the time, I don't know, maybe you've been in a, in a spot where you've been in a pinch and somebody comes through for you. Somebody gives you a very generous gift. Something, maybe you weren't expecting it. And you just feel this overwhelming sense of gratitude. Now, if you're a Christian, you know that that's just not the generosity of that person. If, if that person's a Christian who's giving, that's God's generosity coming to you through them. What's that do that, that stokes your heart, that stirs your heart for worship of God? But we also see that it overflows beyond the impact in Christians' lives. It, it overflows in many thanksgivings. In fact, it goes on um, in verse 14, 13. He says that the generosity of your contribution is for the church, them, and for all others. So those who are actually outside of the church as well. So in this case, as our generosity overflows in the church, it overflows into mission. 
that generosity allows other people to bless and serve not yet believing friends and neighbors. To go back to that church in Houston, it was so cool to see how they distributed their money. Now they, they look, okay, we've got a limited amount of money and they raised a ton of money. It was unbelievable. They said, okay, we wanna, we wanna take care of the people who belong to the church. Right? The people who are here, the people that we know, the people that we love, we want to meet their needs. But listen, we want to take some of that money and allocate it for people who are actually outside of the church as well. We want to bless and serve our not yet believing friends and neighbors and coworkers. See, this is how money is a missional tool. So what Paul is showing us here as we see how the economy of God's grace works, is that money is the currency of God's grace. Money plays an important role in the kingdom of God. We don't just sit here in church and talk about spiritual things. Money is one of those physical things that has a spiritual disposition when it's in God's hands. And we see that as the church in Corinth simultaneously provided for the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs of the church in, Je in Jerusalem as they gave. And the response of those people in Jerusalem in receiving generosity, they are stirred with worship and they are mobilized for mission. Let me tell you this. It's hard to live on mission when you're trying to scrape things together. right? It's hard for a church if we're just so focused on making our own ends meet that we can't see beyond ourselves. See, this is how generosity allows the church to see beyond themselves into the lives of other people. And at the heart of God's economy of grace is the generosity of Jesus towards spiritually poor people like you and me. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, how does that happen? How do we go from being spiritually poor from now possessing the kingdom of heaven? How do we become generous people who, who not only uh, subscribe to this in principle, but who live this out in practicalities? The key to this is understanding the gospel, seeing Jesus' generosity, that though he was rich, Jesus became poor and lived among us. Now listen, there was no greater missionary than Jesus that ever walked the face of this earth. Jesus knew how to take his finances, how his resources, take his wealth and invest it toward the mission He knew that by coming and walking along uh, beside us in this life, he knew that by his poverty and becoming poor, by giving himself, God's extreme generosity would become known. That God isn't some tyrant up in the sky saying, hey, give me your money, give me your money, give me your money. God is a generous God who gives and gives and gives. And Paul says, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. See, Jesus came to this world to show us just how generous God is. And in seeing how generous God is toward us, we respond with worship and thanksgiving. Because in Jesus, God meets the deepest needs that we can't achieve, that we can't supply by money itself. 
And the deepest need that we have is something deep and internal. It's, it's the forgiveness of our sins. To be made right before God. To be righteous. Jesus came and he gave up his life and he paid the price for our sins. He cleansed us of our sins. He said, my righteousness is now your righteousness. And because of this gift of grace, we can echo Paul who closes this passage and says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Do you look at Jesus and go, what a gift. When, when you look at the gospel, when you understand what Jesus has done, do you, are you just blown away? See, this is what the Christian life is about. It's, it's first to put our eyes on the way that God has been generous toward us. See, God doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't done yet himself. And when we see Jesus' generosity toward us, undeserving people, the poor in spirit, how can we not respond with cheerful giving? How can we not want to pay it forward, so to speak? You see, in verse 15, Paul says, the reason why the church gives is because the gospel transforms us into generous people. We become like Jesus. Generosity, he says, comes from your confession of the gospel as we follow the pattern of Christ. Now, if giving, if being generous feels transactional, right, like my buddy that I was talking about, this transactional, this sort of obligatory, dutiful transaction that you have with God, then you don't understand the gospel. You're missing it. You don't see God's generosity, which isn't producing generosity in your own heart. So the first step is to put yourself before Jesus, to look, to observe the cross and see what God has done, how he poured out himself for you and paid the price. But there's also a call to righteousness, that when you see that, maybe, maybe you're... I don't think very many people just are, there's some people who are gifted with cheerful giving that are just general, generous, uh, they have a disposition of generosity that God has given them and that's a blessing to the church. But not everybody is like that. that. That faith requires observing what Jesus has done for us, but then also living that out and practicing generosity. And as we practice generosity, as we look at Jesus and practice generosity, we are cultivated into a generous people. But here's what we need to see as Christians is that there's a, a paradox to cheerful giving. You see, Jesus gave cheerfully. Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It wasn't for the obligation. It wasn't for the duty. It wasn't for because he had to. It was for the joy that was before him, Jesus endured the cross. But listen, the, the price that Jesus paid was agonizingly sacrificial. It was cheerful yet painful. And here is the, the paradox of Christian giving. It is cheerful, it is worshipful, 
but it's sacrificial. See, this momentary hurt that we experience, the momentary pain, the momentary sacrifice fades away and gives birth to a huge joy, a joy that you cannot actually access unless you practice generosity. Now, that's why some of us are uncheerful givers. Right? We can't see past the initial sacrifice. It's too much. It cuts into my lifestyle too much. See, but what you've got to know is that God has something better for you. He wants you to open up your hand so that you can receive more. And when you understand the economy of God's grace, more and more joy becomes available to you. So church, let us look at God's generosity. Let us, as we come to the Lord's table, like this, this is a visual reminder, a physical reminder of what Jesus had spiritually endured for us. His generosity, that he did not withhold his life. He did not keep back a little bit of blood. He gave it all. And so church, let us come and eat and participate in the Lord's generosity towards us. And let, us, let that transform us into worshipers, to give thanks to God for what he has provided in Christ, but all, all of the material needs that he's provided for us. And let's respond with generosity so that we can use our generosity to bless others. To, to see the mission of God move forward, that more and more people would experience the palpable grace of God by the way that we use our finances. For their good, for our good, and for the glory of God, we pray this. Jesus, thank you for not withholding life, but for giving it all. We owe you everything, Father. We owe every piece of our life to you because you did not spare a single ounce of your life for us. We ask that you would stir us with worship, that you would make our hearts attentive to your own generosity, and that little by little we would experience the joy of giving because you, God, are yourself a joyful giver. You delight in giving your children good gifts. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.